0: For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Imagine there's a big barn, just a regular old barn out here in a field somewhere. You went and told one person, I want you to move it. No machines, no equipment, just you. I want you to get up there and move that barn. Of course, that's not going to happen. Well, I wonder if you've ever seen the Amish barn moving stuff. You can find all kinds of videos on YouTube. There's a picture on the U version notes today. If you don't know what I'm talking about, in Amish places where there's Amish communities, uh, there's no big uh, diesel anything, nothing to pull, nothing to do that except animal power and manpower. And so when they decide we need to move a barn, They just gather up all the men in the community, literally pick up the barn by its foundations, and move it where they need it. There's pictures, there's video, it's astounding, but if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. When each one takes their spot, each one takes their place, each one does their part, the weight is distributed. There's no awkward parts or awkward moments. There's no uh, heavy part here and light part there. Everyone's lifting their load, doing their part, and the thing miraculously somehow moves from one field to the other because the burden was shared. So often when it comes to the church, we tend to think that that's what pastors are for. That's what our deacons are for. That's what committees are for. That's someone else's job, not my job, That's their job. And so sometimes in the local church, you might hear things like this. I certainly do as the pastor. Pastor, why aren't you fill in the blank? Why aren't the deacons fill in the blank? My favorite one is when I tell us to come together and see how we can serve the Lord together, and someone will inevitably come to me and say, hey, pastor, I've got a great idea. Why don't you fill in the blank? I was speaking in one church, uh, a previous church of, of mine that I was the pastor of, and we were in a business meeting, and one dude stood up from a committee and sort of nonchalantly said, Well, if the, pastor, if the pastor can fill the pews, and I was sitting in the chair, and everybody in the congregation saw my face, like, well, gee, thanks. It's all on me to somehow fill the pews, but that's sometimes how we think. In the church, we place the load on one person or a few Pastors, staff, leaders, and we put on them something that is hard to lift, something that's hard to move, something that won't budge. But if we began to see that as an opportunity for each one to take their part, each one to share their part of the load, we all lift and we all move together, we might start getting somewhere. It's a lesson That we must remember as a church, it's a lesson that Israel needed to learn here. It's a lesson that Moses needed to learn here. Look at Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. We're going to read through the rest of chapter 17 together first. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This morning we're going to see a lesson Moses needed to learn Aaron and her and Joshua and all the people need to learn. Maybe we need to learn as well. Number one, hold steady. Hold steady. Moses and the people were not ready for war at the beginning of their journey. If you remember, uh, the Lord intentionally took them a different way to avoid the Philistines because he said to them "The people are not prepared for war. And God said, that he was concerned that when they saw war, they would want to turn around and go back to Egypt, which has kind of been a constant, <laughs> a constant problem with them anyway. But whether they're ready for it or not, in chapter 17, verse 8, war is upon them. And the Amalekites attacked them there at Rephidim. Uh, doesn't indicate a reason. Maybe they were just... Afraid someone was encroaching on their territory, uh, we know that they were nomadic, sort of bandits, robbers in the wil- robbers not robbers, robbers in the wilderness. The, maybe some robbers among them. Robbers in the wilderness, uh, looking for goods, looking for money. Whatever the reason was, war is upon Israel, and the Amalekites have attacked. Now it's interesting to know that the Amalekites are descendants of Esau, an Amalek from whom the clan is named, was a grandson of Esau. And you know the war and the friction between Jacob and Esau that was promised from the very beginning. And so we begin to see a little bit of that flesh out here in these descendants of Esau attacking Israel. These perpetual enemies of Israel. We know the Amalekites were a collection of nomadic tribes in the wilderness. And I'm sorry, my brain just immediately goes to Star Wars when I think about nomadic thieves in the desert. And I just see little Jawas running around. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you think I'm crazy. But they were thieves, nomadic sort of robbers in the wilderness. And they have encroached upon Israel to take what they can and to be done with it. And in verse 9, we're introduced to Joshua who Moses appoints as the captain of the people. Sometimes you're watching a show or a miniseries, or you know the shows that kind of come in seasons on Netflix or Hulu or whatever, and you can tell when one character comes on the show that this is just not an extra. This is not just a random appearance. That this is a new character that they're trying to introduce to bring into the equation, and they're going to keep showing up from season to season. Sometimes those characters show up, and you're like, oh, no. This is going to be a regular character. And sometimes you're happy about that. I like that character. Hopefully that's the way we feel about Joshua here because he appears here and he is here to stay for the rest of Israel's conquest into the Promised Land. He will become central now as the captain of God's armies and also Moses' successor. But we also see in verse 9 the reintroduction of the staff. Moses tells Joshua, choose for us men to go out and fight, Tomorrow I will go to the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. The same staff that God called Moses with back in Exodus chapter 4 verse 2. What is that in your hand? It's the staff. The staff that God used to strike down Egypt. The staff that God used to part the Red Sea and to to swallow Pharaoh and his armies. It's the same staff that God will use now to wipe out this clan of Amalek. And Moses says, I'm going to go to the top of the mountain as you're fighting. And I'm there with the staff going to stretch out my hand. And the Bible tells us something interesting here. That while Joshua and the people are fighting below, Moses above, anytime time he would lift his hand with the staff, Israel would prevail. Seemingly both hands, because we see the picture of these two taking the different sides. With the staff, they would prevail. But any time he would lower it, become weary or weak, or have to lower it for a while... Amalek would prevail. So we have a problem. Does this mean defeat for Israel? Does this mean that if Moses grows weary or he can't hold his hands up the whole time that something is going to happen and Israel is going to be defeated and not be able to go on with their conquest? We see here that Moses lifts up his hands in intercession the people. The Bible does not specifically say that he was there praying for the people. But we can deduce that by the outstretching of his hands with the staff, intercession was going on. The arms raised were a sign that Moses was invoking the power of God on behalf of the people. And so as the battle rages below, Moses is there above with his hands lifted signifying God's might and God's power and God's victory for the people. Now there's sort of debate over whether or not this was some sort of supernatural thing. That when Moses raised his hand, like it made the people victorious. Or was it just a rallying cry for the people? That when they saw him there, it pumped them up like they were the home team and they were able to go and fight harder. And when he lowered it, not so much. We don't know the reason why. All we know is that God was in it. And God told Moses, even as Joshua is fighting, you go up and lift up your hand with the staff and I will give Israel victory as long as the staff is raised. But in verse 12, we come to that problem that Moses becomes weary. As anyone would. No certain unnamed congregants I've seen participate in the, the stein hoisting contest at the of turtle. We see, we see the hand stretched out like this and what begins to happen over time? You start shaking and, and, and you can think that you're holding it out straight the whole time, right? But it, it eventually starts to go down and get weaker and weaker until suddenly it drops and of course the last one standing wins. Well, it wasn't a stein. It was Moses' staff, the staff of God. He's holding it up, but you can see his arms begin to tremble You can see his arms begin to go down lower and lower and lower, and Amalek begins to prevail more and more. So they bring a stone for Moses to sit on. It's going to fix the problem, right? No, they go one step further. Aaron comes on one side, and Hur comes on the other side. And now they are physically, literally lifting Moses' arms into the air, holding his staff so that the people might prevail. And in verse 13, that's exactly what happened. It says, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, I want you to notice the actors in the story so far. Moses is a very real actor. He's doing his part, raising the staff. Aaron and Hur are very real actors. They're helping Moses, literally lifting his arms so that he can raise his staff. Joshua' doing his part. He's leading the people in battle over Amalek. The people are doing their part as they rise up to fight. Everyone's doing their part. And here in verse 13, it's specifically said, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek with the sword. But then we come to verse 14, we see something peculiar. Although Moses was doing his part, Aaron and Hur were doing their part. Joshua was doing his part. The people are doing their part. It even says that Joshua overwhelmed the Amalekites. Verse 14 says, The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book, recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it the Lord Is my banner. You might have heard the name of God, Jehovah Nisi or Yahweh Nisi. That's this. The Lord is my banner. Moses built an altar called it, The Lord is my banner, saying, verse 16, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Moses, you've done your part. Aaron and Hur, you've done your part. Joshua, you've done your part. You've overwhelmed them with the sword. But Moses, this is what I want you to write. That the Lord will utterly wipe out Amalek. And I want you to build an altar. And I want you to name the altar, which was common in the Old Testament, as a banner, a rallying point for the people of Israel. And what's going to be written on the banner? What's the rallying point? Well, maybe Joshua, the commander of the armies. He was down on the ground calling the shots. He overwhelmed Amalek with the sword. Maybe Joshua's name should be on it. Maybe Moses should be the name on after all he was literally the banner the standard under which israel was fighting up there with his staff in the air maybe aaron and her should have a place on the altar they were in fact holding up moses in his arms that is not what god says to name the altar says the name of the altar will be yahweh the lord is my banner the lord is our standard our signal We as his people march under him, his power, his presence, because he fights our battles. I thought it was Joshua, in part. I thought it was Moses, in part. I thought it was Aaron and her, in part. But it is God who fights our battles and God who deserves all the glory. And this is the first of many. It's first of many battles for Israel. As we continue on through the conquest, and then they come to the land, and there's even more conquest. And we'll see hero after hero, judges and rulers and kings and prophets raised up. But who gets the glory in each story? Who gets the glory in the whole narrative? God alone receives the glory. Yahweh alone is our banner and our rallying cry. To this point, the story's been focused on Moses. Been all about Moses. We had Aaron at first as a helper, but remember, even during the plagues, Aaron's role sort of started to fade out as Moses rose to the task that God God had called him to. And as Aaron slowly fades, the focus has been on Moses the whole time. But we're beginning to see here, even in this story, that this job is too big for one person. Moses is old, he's becoming weary, he's becoming tired. He's focused on a monumental task. I mean, can you imagine being the singular old man that's called to lead one million plus people through the wilderness, through wars, through their physical needs, through their spiritual needs. And in this moment of intercession for his people, his arms get tired. A very real, understandable need. And he needs someone to hold steady with him, to literally and physically lift up his arms in this fight. Well, you say, well, I thought God was the one at work. Of course God was at work. It was God's victory, God's work, God's power, working through Moses, working through Aaron and her, working through Joshua, working through all the people, even as God alone was the one fighting the battle. Even though it was God, he used Moses. He used Aaron. He used her. He used Joshua. He used the people to come alongside of Moses and to help him in this monumental task. To give him support. To give him encouragement. To give him comfort. God is telling us number two today, you can't do this alone. As we come into chapter 18, the first nine verses, we have the first mention of Moses' family in a long time. When's the last time we heard about his sons or his wife or, or Jethro, his father-in-law? And this is the last time we will hear their names or see their, their appearance here in the story, except for genealogies and some records here and there. And Moses, in these first nine verses, shares with his father-in-law Jethro all that God has done. And Jethro begins to rejoice In verse 9, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now I want you to look at what Jethro begins to say in verse 10. After hearing what God has done for Israel, after hearing what God has done through Moses, Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair he has dealt, uh, they dealt arrogantly with the people. Jethro, Moses' father in law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father in law before God. Jethro is here. It's a random scene in what is otherwise this sort of epic narrative. We stop, we have the visit from the father in law. Jethro, this pagan priest, hearing all that Yahweh had done for Israel and through Moses, is converted. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the other gods. He denounces the other gods. And he shows his devotion now to Yahweh by offering a burnt offering to him. So much so that Moses gathers all the elders and Aaron, his brother, to come in and eat before the Lord with Jethro. It's a wonderful side note, this impact of Moses with his family. There's also a word here. I think about sharing your faith, even with those closest to you. You notice in this scene, Moses was not agitated. Moses was not intentionally offensive to his father-in-law. In In fact, in chapter 18, verse 7, Moses went out to greet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other of their welfare, and they went into the tent. How often with that lost family member do things get divisive and offensive and agitated from their side and from your side, and you feel like you cannot share the truth with them because you're getting so angry, and you feel like they're not listening to you because they're so angry? Moses was not angry. He wasn't agitated. He was not intentionally offensive. But with kindness and love and respect, he nevertheless shared the truth about Yahweh. And God's Spirit working through Moses' witness brings Jethro to faith in the one true and living God. So listen, as you share with others what Christ has done for you, what God has done for you in Christ, here's the thing we often get wrong. On one side, you like my ditches by now, right? We have our ditches. On on this side, you have the all love, no truth. And this is where a lot of Christianity is, unfortunately, in our day. All love, all acceptance, all harmony and peace and hand-holding, but no truth. So there's no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as warning people of sin. There's no need to call people to repentance because they're fine just as they are. There's no hell, no wrath, no anger, no judgment. All love. Wrong. Ditch. The other side of that road, in the other ditch, is all truth and no love. Right? Right? God is judge. He is wrathful. He is hateful. He's coming to get you without having to mention what God has done in love through Christ so that people might avoid his judgment and have eternal life forever. And so you see, we must walk that road between those two ditches. The Bible, the Apostle Peter gives us a very clear way to do this. He just says, speak the truth in love. Don't not speak the truth, but as you speak the truth, speak the truth in love. Share the truth. Preach the word. Proclaim the gospel in all of its fullness, heaven and hell, life and wrath. But do so in love and from a place of love as Moses does with Jethro here. Jethro then in verse 13 has an observation in verse 13, Moses sat to judge the people. The people stood around Moses from morning until evening. The people coming to Moses with their problems, all the people, from morning until evening. Sort of an idiomatic way of just saying nonstop. <laughs> from dusk till dawn and dawn to dusk, the people are there before Moses with their problems with their needs, with their requests, with their wants. And Moses is sitting there as the one singular judge for all the people, all by himself. And in verse 14, Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people. He said, I love, I love to question, what is, what is this that you're doing for the people? What are you doing, Moses? And he says, this is not good for you, and this is not good for them. He says, you're going to make each other weary. Moses says in verse 15, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, verse 16, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. In verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. Verse 18, you and the people with you certainly will wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. What is this that you're doing, Moses, trying to do all of this by yourself? You cannot do this by yourself. It's too burdensome for you, and then it becomes not good just for you, but not good for the people either. You're going to wear yourself out, and you're going to wear the people out. Verses 19 through 20, Jethro gives some advice to Moses. Obey my voice, I will give you advice, God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, though, you see what he says? Keep doing what you're doing. You're doing well. Don't stop giving advice. Don't stop judging. Don't stop telling them what the Lord is revealing. But verse 21, moreover, but, however, look for able men from all the people. Men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, listen, and they will bear the burden with you. Here's Jethro's advice. Keep doing what you're doing, but get yourself some help in doing it. Get some men around you. It sounds familiar to what we saw in chapter 17. As Moses became weary and his, his hands and his staff and Aaron and her literally come alongside and support him now. So now in a more metaphorical way, he needs some men from the congregation of Israel to gather around him. Qualified men. He said, men whom you trust Men who will not take a bribe, good men who fear the Lord, and let them help you, so to speak, lift up your arms and lead the people. It will be easier, it says in verse 22, easier because they're sharing the burden with you. As the one Amish man, to the next Amish man, to the next Amish man takes his place at the foot of this tremendous barn, and each in their time and in their way, doing their part. Lift their load. How much easier that is to move that tremendous structure. You need people holding you up. You need people sharing the burden. Verses 23 through 26, Moses listened. He appointed people to do exactly as Jethro had said. And God gave them success. And in verse 27, Moses let his father-in-law depart... And he went away to his own country. What we make of this very practical part of an otherwise grand, epic, sensational narrative. I mean, we've come through plagues and parted seas and armies and wars. And if you're paying attention to the structure of Exodus, as I said in the very beginning of this, we're, we're almost to the end of the narrative portion. If you would, this is kind of the penultimate scene. Before we get to the ultimate scene on Sinai and God's glory and the giving of the commandments and the institution of the covenant, that big stuff, this is the note before that. And how practical and how down-to-earth and applicational it is. What do we make of this? And Jethro shows up in God's providence, having been brought to faith in Yahweh by the testimony of Moses. Jethro is here in the right place at the right time with the right word for Moses and the people. Moses, you need help. Moses did need help. If you've been following along to this point in the story, the people were either in awe of Moses or they were grumbling against Moses. They had the two ditches too. They either thought Moses was the best thing ever when the quail and the manna was coming and the water was flowing and they were marching through the sea and all the plagues came and they marched out of Egypt, or he was the worst thing ever and why did you bring us out here just to die, Moses? Praising him when they got what they wanted, grumbling when they did not get what they wanted. But you notice none of them were going to step in and do too much for themselves, they just wanted to grumble. And Moses. And so God uses this outside, quote, third-party Jethro to speak some truth into the situation. And that's what you need sometimes as believers, as leaders, just people in general. This isn't bad advice for any of us, is it? Get someone who loves you, someone who wants the best for you, but who can honestly see and diagnose problems that can suggest a helpful path forward. Now listen, I'm not asking you to look for someone to run you over, because sometimes I think that's what people who think they're doing you a service are doing, they're just running you over with all the critiquing. I'm looking for someone with a relationship, someone who you love and you trust already, that praises you, that encourages you, that helps you, that kind of person, not just to give criticism, but constructive criticism i once knew a church um, that, that had a couple men that just always saw it it was their duty when a vote came to vote no they just had to be the ones to vote no because no one should be left unchallenged or unquestioned especially the pastor and so i just saw i saw it as their duty to be the no vote now how childish and immature is that I've got to be the person to say no, because I'm, hel- I'm helping the pastor, after all. It's not helping the pastor. That's helping no one. Look for someone that loves you, that is pouring into you already, that supports you, that encourages you, but will also say when you need to address something in your own life, in your own soul, your own spirit, in your own direction, in your own calling. We all need these things in our lives. Proverbs 1.7 Only a fool despises wisdom. Only a fool despises wisdom. Someone who's willing to help, someone who's willing to show you a little bit of the way in front of you. Only a fool says, no, I don't want that. And as strong as Moses was, as mightily used of God as he was, Moses needed this word. He needed it in this moment for himself and for his people. And God used it and God blessed it. He gave it success. And there is here for us, lastly, a lesson for us all. As I said earlier, there is something for us here, too, for believers, for our church. A leadership uh, workshop, I don't know, a year and a half ago, I think, I I titled our time together, What Are You Here For? Now, it's a silly little pastor way to get across three truths. Four. What are you here for? Faithfulness, ownership, and relationships. That's what I want our leadership, our people, our congregation. That's what I want us to be here for, those things. Faithfulness, giving, attendance, priorities, ownership in our ministries and our service as we build relationships with each other. At the beginning of this year, in our emphasis on Let's Go, we talked about building relationships. We talked about outreach. We talked about evangelism, fellowship. Moving us beyond that idea as a church of, that's not my job. There's a committee for that. There's a team for that. There's a staff member for that. There's a pastor for that. That's not me. I think if you take a step back and look at so many churches, and our church is not exempt from this, so many churches can easily become a program put on by a few a program put on by a few for the entertainment and the general satisfaction of the crowd. Now, it's not always the people's fault that this happens in churches. In fact, a lot of that responsibility lies with pastors and worship pastors who make the church that, an entertainment spectacle, a presentation to be appreciated and satisfaction of the crowd to be gained. And so when you go to a church... You want the singing to match what you want. You want the serving to be for you. You want the teaching and the preaching to not be too long or too short. You want it to be funny but not too funny. We want these programs, we don't want those programs. And what we're saying to churches is, what can you do for me? What can you do, pastor, for my family? What do you people have to offer me? What can you do for us? And can we strike a deal here? The church was never meant to be that. You understand this? Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 tells us what we're supposed to do as the body of Christ to bear one another's burdens. Individual burdens. Physical, spiritual, emotional, mental burdens to come alongside and bear those with one another. Yes, that's all there. But what about the greatest burden that God has placed on us together? What is the greatest burden that God has placed on us together as a church? Is it not what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28? Verses 19 through 20. To go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, even as I am with you to the end of the age. Was that commission given to just the apostles? Was that commission given to just pastors, just the teachers, just the deacons, just the ministry teams? No, of course not. The great commission by the power of the Holy Spirit was given to all of God's people, to the church. You all go and make disciples. One of the ways God equipped the local church to do this, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, is the giving of officers and leaders. God gave some to be apostles and prophets, God gave some to be pastors and teachers. The giving of offices and officers in the gifts of pastors and teachers. And Paul would go on to say in 1 Timothy 3, the office of deacon. I want you to know this morning that those of us who are staff pastors, uh, Zane, Matt, and, and Matt, Zane, Matt, and Matt, the other Matt, those of us who are staff elders, we have a job. We were hired by you, we're paid by you to do a job. We have a a set list of responsibilities that each of us takes care of to serve our ministry here at the church. And I believe the Bible teaches a plurality of elders for that very purpose. So there's not just that burden on one person. That that burden is shared between other pastors, staff pastors, paid pastors, lay pastors, lay elders that God would see fit to raise up in our body. God gives deacons a job. He gives deacons a responsibility to serve the church by serving the pastors. To enable the pastors to preach and to teach and to carry on with that spiritual load of the church as they take care of that physical load of the church. But I want you to listen to me today. Nowhere is service or leadership or responsibility limited to the officers of the church. In fact, everywhere you look in the New Testament, Paul, Peter, the apostles are constantly telling the whole church to serve. We're not going to turn here and read it, but just mark down Romans 12:3 through 8. It's in the U version notes online. I think that's so interesting that even after Paul says offer your bodies a living sacrifice to God, this is your reasonable act of worship. What does he then go on to say? this is how you offer your body as a living sacrifice to God, by using your gifts and using your callings to serve each other in the local church. Paul devotes whole chapters, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, on the spiritual gifts and the use of spiritual gifts in the body of Christ for the sake of the body of Christ. And what's Paul's point? It's a body And not every body part has the same use or the same function, but if the body is going to be 100% useful, all the parts have to be operating. And Paul says, Your gift might not be the same as your gift or your gift, but when all of them come together, that is how God intends for His body to work. Leaders, pastors, teachers, deacons, we are setting the course setting the course physically, spiritually, biblically, in our teaching, in our leadership, in our service, in church body, the assembly, the congregation, in place, doing your part, we are called then together to go. The good news of Easter that we celebrated last week, that goes on every Lord's Day as we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord, the good news of Easter and the resurrection is that our living Lord has triumphed. He's won the victory. He has won the war over sin and death and hell. Moses stood there on the mountain with his arms outstretched, his staff in his hand, interceding for the people of God. Even as Joshua was called to go fight the battles, Moses was the one there interceding, and they won the battle. Jesus, listen, has won the entire war for us. There's nothing to be added to it, nothing to be done to further his victory. His victory is won, his triumph is sure, but he has called us into the battle fray with him together. And just as Moses' hands were outstretched to give the people victory, Jesus stretches out his hands over us in victory and in blessing, and we go then to fight in his name. This is what Zane read for us earlier in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, isn't it? As you stand and you put on the armor of God, remember, we are fighting a war here. But it's not a fight against people. We don't don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers, these demonic forces of evil and wickedness in the world. That is where our fight is. And it is more of a fight and more intense of a fight than any earthly physical war we may have seen. And we must do it together. I know I can speak for Pastor Matt and Pastor Zane. And this, Pastor Matt, that sometimes we're tired. Sometimes we are weary and we need rest. And sometimes we just need folks to come along and figuratively, metaphorically, don't come do this to me today or I'll say you've missed the point. Lift up our arms in support and encouragement and prayer and love with Jesus as our chief shepherd to encourage us and to bless us as your under-shepherds, as you come alongside of us and help us and bless us and pray for us and love us and support us. Isn't this what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 13, 17? This is every pastor's favorite verse and every congregant's most hated verse. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those... Who will have to give an account? Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. What is our primary calling as your leaders, as your pastors, your elders? We are keeping watch not over this building, though that's included. Not over our programs and our ministries and our music and the preaching and all the stuff, though that's included. We are supposed to be keeping watch over your very souls, And what is the congregation's responsibility here? To support us in this without groaning. Because what good is a groaning, angry, grumbling congregation to the rest of the congregation? That's no good for you. It's no good for us. And nobody can support and do their calling and their ministry if that's the way things are operating. And so God would tell us today through the author of Hebrews, through these stories in Exodus, be useful in the hands of God. Be useful. Love, support, encourage, follow. If indeed you believe your pastors have been sent here and called of God at this church at this time for this season, if you believe that, we have a responsibility to you and you have a responsibility to us. As we look at Dumas, we look at our schools, we look at our families, we look at our communities here, we look at our church, we see that whether, whether we're ready for war or not, war is upon us. Amen? War is upon us. It's upon you as an individual believer. It's upon your family. It's upon your children. It's here, ready or not. And if we are going to be ready to fight And to win those battles for Jesus with his truth, with his armor, we, you, cannot do it alone. And you are not called to do it alone. Deacons, leaders, pastors, staff, committee leaders, ministry team leaders, ministry team members, congregation, whatever you're calling, whatever your responsibility, we all have a part to play we all have a part of the burden to lift. And here near the end of this narrative portion of Exodus, we see Moses needed help. It's a very simple lesson here at the end of this portion. Moses needed help. And I tell you today that we as your pastors, your deacons, your staff, we need help. Help. I want to ask you a very simple question today as a church. I think you know the answer to it. I hope you know the answer to it. And you agree with me. Do you want to grow? Yeah, yes, we want to grow. Absolutely. Amen. Here's how we can grow together. Stop spectating and serve. Stop spectating and serve. There is not one ministry team... There's not one committee, there's not one deacon nomination, or one vote to call a pastor that can do the job that God has called the whole church to do. We are all called into this. And so the question for us this morning is, are you holding up some arms today? Are you holding steady those whom God has called to lead us? Are you in the fight alongside of them or are you fighting them? Are you praying for them? Are you supporting them? Are you loving them? Are you serving with them as they serve you? The title of the sermon today is the final point, share the burden. Share the burden. Find your place. Kneel down, pick up the beam, and let's move this thing together. In our time of response today, I want to invite us all to a time of prayer. I always tell you there's there's nothing magical about these steps. Nothing magical about these front pews. But there is something in us coming together as a church to pray together here. That signifies what we're being called to today. And that is to come alongside of each other. To share the burden. And to fight the war together. So as we sing together today. Here's my call to prayer. That you would pray for your pastors. That you would be those that that regularly text or call or write. Pastor Matt, Pastor Zane, myself. Not only when you have a problem. Which is welcome. Not only when you have a complaint. Which is welcome. We can talk about those things. But just to say. Good job. I support you. I love you. Zane, in your ministry to our family and our students. Matt, in your ministry to our worship department, our music, leading us every week so well as we sing to the Lord. A call to prayer for our deacons that they would step in and serve as God has called them to serve. A call to prayer for our staff our pastors included, but our office staff, all those that serve the church as paid staff members, that we would see that not just as a job, but as our divine calling. Prayer for our committees, personnel, finance, nominating, our trustees, that we would lead the church well in those business and those financial matters. Call to prayer for our ministry teams as they serve the various aspects of our church and the various outreaches of our church. A call to prayer for those leaders of those teams and those committees and the staff. A call to prayer for our teachers, Sunday school teachers, Bible study teachers, small group leaders. Think centrally today, a call to prayer for our whole congregation. That we would understand that we're in this together. That we're in this fight together. And so let's be in the fight together. That will be my call to prayer. I will close in prayer. Matt will come and lead us. I'm going to be here praying. I invite you, if you're a leader, not a leader, whatever you are, whatever your calling is, to come and pray with us as we together stand and hold each other up in this fight. Our God and our Father, we love you. and We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for the gifts and calling of your Holy Spirit that you've poured out on us as believers. Gifts and callings that vary from person to person as our personalities, as our physical attributes. You've given us each a gift with which to serve in this church, to serve each other, to serve your kingdom. I thank you for this body of believers, their encouragement, their support, their unity, the peace that we know here, God. And I ask that as we pray today, you would bind us together in a spirit of unity and grace and love and power. That we as one army might march forward against the gates of hell here in our communities and our families. And that we might be that army that proclaims the gospel of the light of Jesus Christ into the darkness of this world. And we can only do that together. So as we pray So we come together to pray. Here in this place, at this moment, bind us together by the power of your Holy Spirit. Empower us and equip us to serve you and your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask all these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's FBCDUMAS at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806 935 5604. We'll see you next time.